0: thank you everybody for for joining us again. Uh, this is I think the the ninth benefactor briefing we've done since uh since 2020 kicked off and we discovered we needed uh, more ways to all stay in touch. so I'm uh, glad to see uh, you know some of our of our uh frequent viewers, Pete and Carol, uh Jim, and everybody uh, on online again we're we're glad to be with you. uh today we're gonna be talking about uh, you know, Cato's priorities in in the 118th Congress and, and beyond uh with David Bowes and Chad Davis. Uh I'll let David talk a little bit more about the uh the handbook when I when I pass things over to him but just uh as a reminder uh uh to do questions we're going to either you can put them in the chat You can use the raise hand feature, uh, which uh, you can get from the participants window uh, or down in the bottom right hand corner, Uh, or you can email me jforensic at cato.org and Mackenzie has also just helpfully posted uh, a note in the chat. uh, you know, for one, uh, one other note is uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the handbook before we uh, move transition to a conversation between Chad Davis and uh, David Bowes about our congressional strategy, our congressional affairs strategy, and then we will uh, save time for policy questions or any strategy questions uh, at the end of the conversation. Uh, also, uh, we did just get in our new Cato handbook for policymakers in print. Uh, so. If uh, you are looking to grab a copy of those, uh, you can email me, and we'd be happy to put one in the mail. Uh, thank you for helping us uh, put this together as as Cato sponsors. Uh, this is the ninth edition of uh, the Cato Handbook. David has uh, been involved with all of them. I have the, uh, the first one here that was for the 104th Congress, uh, a big yellow warning that we should uh, shrink government. It's gotten a little, uh, uh, maybe less of an eyesore on the bookcase, but uh, it's just as uh, important of a, of a document. And so uh, Chad, uh, you know, as part of his first uh, moves in January, will be sending these books to all members of Congress, and, and he'll talk a little bit about that as well. But
1: uh, David, if you'd like to take it away. All right. Thank you, Josh. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for being here once again or for the first time. Um, We're coming to you live from the Cato Institute. We're all coming from different rooms, so it'll look like a cable television setup. (laughs) As Josh said, we're gonna talk about Cato's work in relation to Capitol Hill and other parts of the government, and I'll start with a bit on the new Cato Handbook for Policymakers, and then I'll bring in our new Vice President for Government Affairs. Um, The handbook, as Josh said, is in the ninth edition, and he held up a copy of it. I just got mine today. But it's also online, and it's been online for a couple of months, and that's one of the differences. Obviously, the way we communicate evolves, and one of the big differences is, when we first started doing the handbook in 1995, the way you got things in people's hands was pretty much to call them, well, call them on the phone if you wanted to talk to them, mail them, or Mm -hmm. carry them over to Capitol Hill, but over the nine editions that we've done, we've moved from mostly it's a book that we give to you and we hope you put on your shelf to mostly it's online. I think that's the way journalists and congressional staff would generally access it. And obviously one advantage of it being online is that each chapter is a separate link. And so if you're only interested in trade or healthcare, although there's like nine healthcare chapters because Michael Cannon is unstoppable, but at any rate, there's a healthcare section that you could go to. I still like the uh, description that the Washington Post wrote for that very first handbook, the yellow one that Josh held up, um, when they described it as a soup to nuts agenda to reduce spending, kill programs, terminate whole agencies and dramatically restrict the power of the federal government. Well, it is indeed still that. Um, It's bigger than it used to be. The first one had 39 chapters. I think this one has 77. That's not entirely because the government's gotten bigger. It's because our staff has gotten bigger. And so there are more people um, with expertise in more specific areas that uh, we're doing. Um, What's new in the handbook? Obviously, a lot of the issues we talk about What we suggested that they do two years ago or six years ago, they still should do because they haven't changed anything fundamental. Um, There are some new bad things that we're urging them to reverse. Um, One difference is we created a new section there at the top defending our constitutional republic because after uh, January 6th and a few things like that, that seemed like an important issue the good news and and maybe we'll talk about this a little later is that we already won a victory on what the handbook says that uh uh uh, well the chapter on election law includes uh reforming the electoral count act which addresses how do you actually formally count the electoral votes what's the role of the vice president etc and we passed uh, congress passed a bill in december that the president signed so we've already ticked off one reform that we recommended in the handbook before the 818th Congress even started. Uh, We've also got chapters in there on how to do honest redistricting, um, fixing the problem of vacancy appointments in the federal government. That's really gotten out of hand. The point of the advice and consent of the Senate is the president can't just appoint his cronies or appoint his brother attorney general like President Kennedy did. The Senate gets to look over his appointments, but because the Senate is often very slow about doing that, presidents have increasingly just put acting appointees in, and one of our newer colleagues, Tommy Berry, is maybe the world's leading expert on the vacancy act and the, and the ways the vacancies act has been uh, interpreted. And so he's got suggestions on how we should fix that. And then of course, a perennial uh, interest of ours is reigning in the executive branch. We wanna rein in the federal government, but even within the federal government, we wanna reign in the executive branch. Um, just one more thing I will say about the handbook, um, as I hope you've noticed in your communications from Cato, we have a program organized around defending the free economy. And in this book, um, we have a new chapter called The Importance of Growth. And that's where Ryan Bourne talks about why so many problems would be improved if economic growth was stronger. And we ought to be thinking about that as sort of the fundamental thing you talk about when you talk about economic policy. And so the importance of growth, the priority of economic growth. And as another colleague said a few years ago, if you could just get Washington to talk about, let's say, the importance of growth rather than the importance of inequality, even the bad ideas advanced to improve economic growth are probably better than most of the ideas that are advanced for some of these other causes. So let's get everybody talking about growth. And that is obviously related to the chapters in the handbook on economic policy, but also the new sort of sub handbook from Scott Linscombe and his colleagues in the economics world. Um, what's, the, what's the actual title there, Josh?
0: It is uh, Empowering the New American Worker.
1: Yes, yeah, uh, so Empowering to- the New empowering the new american worker so this is partly a way of taking free market ideas and specifically saying how do they affect workers because as you know a whole lot of policies are advanced under the guise of being good for workers being good for labor and we want to say yes here are a lot of policies including school choice and social security reform that would be good for workers um in a relatedly We have significantly expanded our um, fiscal policy team recently. Uh, We added Romina Baccia, we added Mark Jaffe, and we're actually adding another person who I'm not sure has told his current employer or whatever. So I probably shouldn't mention his name here, but we will be getting another experienced fiscal policy analyst joining us anytime now. Um, So that's the handbook. If you have questions about that, feel free. Um, to email your questions to Josh, put them in the chat or use the raise hands button at the bottom of the screen. Now, I want to talk with Chad Davis, our new vice president for government affairs about the work he's going to be doing. Chad uh, just joined us, I think, in November. Um, He spent a dozen years working in Congress, including seven years with the Senate Banking Committee. Uh, After that, he worked for two years doing Capitol Hill outreach for the Federal Reserve, and more recently has worked at the FDIC and then the Federal Housing Finance Agency. So he's got a lot of experience in how congressional offices work, from seeing it on the inside, how people work with congressional offices, from doing that on the outside, and also how the federal agencies work and Some of our work involves talking to people in the regulatory agencies, places like the Fed and the FDIC and so on. And he just joined us in November as our vice president for government affairs to expand our outreach and impact here in Washington. So Chad, welcome to your first benefactor briefing.
2: Thank you, David, appreciate it. Um, I'm excited to talk more tonight, field any questions that uh, people may have and just talk a little bit more about uh, uh, the vision of how it is that I hope I and my team can help uh, advance, uh, you know, the mission of Cato.
1: So you're new here, but you've been here a couple of months. So what's your plan for Cato's government outreach?
2: Yeah, the 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 biggest thing that uh, I, I think we can do to be helpful is to build a a team that has had a very diverse set of experiences um, experiences with different committees, different. Offices uh, throughout the Congress, um, Cato's reach uh, issue wide issue wise is quite wide, um, and so to do that, uh, I think we need to have a, a, a good group of folks whose strengths complement each other, uh, not duplicate uh, each other, and and really get to know uh, the issue areas that they're going to be working in, the scholars that they're going to be working with, um, and 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 build this out in a way that allows us to maximize everybody's time and to maximize uh, the outreach that we can make
1: so i know you're new but i mentioned a uh, a legislative victory that we had in december maybe you could say a little more about that
2: yeah uh and uh, in no way will i take credit for this because uh, great people were working on this uh before i got here but it's a great vit- uh, victory for cato and i think shows that um when we stick with an issue, keep talking about an issue, we can really educate the public. Um, and as you mentioned, it was uh, the Electoral Count Act. Um, you know, this is an issue that that when at first people started to talk about it, I think there was some nervousness uh, from some members of Congress. Uh, there was an education campaign uh, that that went on over a, a number of months. Um, uh, Thomas Berry has done a lot of work on this. Others have too. Uh, and at the end of the day it, it was something that was voted out of the rules committee which was a committee of jurisdiction within the Senate by a 14 to one vote uh it gained the um uh it gained the the support of both the majority and the minority leader in the Senate uh it was able to to be included without objection into uh, uh the the large uh spending bill that uh, we may have some other concerns with but in this particular instance it was a win um I won't uh put myself out as an expert on the policy but just to throw out a few highlights uh, in case people aren't aware um clarified that um um uh, you know that the electors are set on election day and unless there's some sort of national disaster or attack uh clarified what the vice president did and did not have the power to do there was a lot of debate around that and then the big thing was it raised um uh, the number of um, members that need to object uh, to certifying electors from just one member of Congress to 20% percent uh, in, in both chambers. So uh, again, ideas that that won uh, support from a wide variety of members um, and, and I think really showed what you what you can do when you uh, go on an effective public education campaign.
1: Well, that's right. And I think, you know, we had three scholars who did a good bit of work on it and our uh, existing government affairs team. And a lot of some of that was, as you say, public education, but a lot of it was talking to people privately in meetings, in meetings from the Republican side, the Democratic side, the House side, the Senate side, getting people comfortable with um, this law was badly designed 150 years ago. It's a, it's a sad thing to think that a law passed by Congress would have been badly designed, but this one was. <laughs> yeah. And so in a sense, we were just cleaning up mistakes that uh, long ago Congress had made. Um, I understand that we might have had some modest influence on immigration policy recently too.
2: Yeah, we uh, we had um, uh, David Beer and other scholars that uh, had been working for some time, uh, advancing some some modest changes around immigration policy, and um, the Department of Homeland Security and the President uh, recently announced that uh, a lot of changes that they had been working on and advocated were uh, going to be put into place. Uh, it it um, expands into uh, four countries now a program similar to what had been um, uh, underway with Ukraine, allowing sponsorship of people uh, in the US of uh, folks that are trying to enter the country, um, allowed for application of asylum at the border, um, allowed for or or implemented some additional um, uh, security measures as well, Uh, and and again, shows uh, what uh, can be done when you have uh, effective policy from people that know the issues well and are willing to engage uh, with the government, this time not the Congress, uh, engaging this time uh, with the uh, executive branch.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Congress can't seem to find an agreement on anything for immigration. So whether it's (laughs) President Obama, President Trump or President Biden, all the action is coming out of the executive there. Um, So we have a new Congress, just started last week, um, a little bit slower than they expected. <laughs> it took them a while to elect a speaker, and apparently they can't do anything until they elect a speaker. It turned out they didn't even have any rules. So C-SPAN could have its cameras roam around the House floor, which normally the rules of the House do not allow. But anyway, now both houses are organized. What do you expect over the next two years from Congress?
2: Uh, I mean, I think, I, I think we all need to be very honest that there's, there's going to be a lot of gridlock. Um, that's not always a bad thing, uh, but I, you know, I, I think when you have divided government, that's going to be the natural outcome. Um, and quite frankly, there's narrow majorities, both within the house and the Senate. Um, so the house and the Senate are going to have their own internal fights. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't ideas that, uh, will be advanced and are important to advance. Uh, I think that there'll be a lot of, um, ideas that'll make it through the house. There'll be a lot of ideas that'll make it through the Senate. Uh, within that, there'll be a lot of debates around those ideas and opportunities to really um, talk about things that we want to talk about. Um, but I won't sit here and say that I expect um, large grand reforms uh, to pass the House and the Senate and be signed by the president. Um, I think that that this Congress is going to be largely about setting up ideas for whatever shift we uh, may incur in the next two years.
1: I always have a sense that when I read bipartisan vote, I know it's a spending boondoggle. But <laughs> Our late sainted chairman Bill Niskanen, who had been a longtime Washington observer and a uh, a student of statistics, concluded that divided government was better for both fiscal restraint and staying out of war. What's your perspective on divided government?
2: I think I think that's right. You uh, you in a lot of ways at least through the congressional process, uh, you force negotiations that don't happen when you have unified government. And divided government can be the two chambers being of different parties like we have now. Divided government can also occur when you have a president of one party and two um, and and the other party controlling both chambers of Congress. Uh, In either situation, uh, you you force a certain degree of negotiations that uh, would not otherwise need to take place. Um, and that tends to 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 slow things down, um, and that tends to be, lead to less money being spent. Um, in in a lot of cases, um, you can get unified government where you have lower spending, but there's probably some other um, policies that move through more quickly than what you would expect, as well. So I think I think that's a very uh, astute observation.
1: Some uh, leading Democrat, I think probably a few decades ago, was said to have told a new member, um, the Republicans are the opposition, the Senate is the enemy.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, there is there is a lot of that. Uh, having worked on both the House side and the Senate side, um, I can assure you that the staff uh, also keeps that in mind as well. I, uh, I can remember uh, being a young staffer and hearing uh, staff talk about that uh, as well. There is there is a certain amount of that. Now, you see, you do get members that work um, across chambers, but there's a there's a natural rivalry between the two chambers for sure.
1: So if we have divided government, does that present more of a temptation for the President to start legislating by fiat?
2: Absolutely. It pushes. When, when a president doesn't feel like, for whatever reason, uh, that they're able to move their agenda through the Congress, you naturally have a shift to um, trying to advance priorities through uh, a, um, the executive branch and uh, other agencies. Um, there's a certain degree of that, no matter what, um, but, but it, it absolutely puts more pressure um, on, on the agencies uh, themselves to move forward without additional congressional action.
1: And we have a couple of chapters in the handbook on how we might try to rein in the presidency. One of the problems there is the founders expected that each branch of government, legislative, judicial, and executive, would be jealous of its own powers and would exercise constraints on the other two uh, uh, branches. But it seems in our modern world, the parties have become so partisan and so polarized that they simply won't do anything about a president of their own party. And obviously, unless you have a basically a veto proof majority in both houses, wanting to impose a restriction on the executive, it's not going to happen. And, you know, I sort of wish a president would shoot a man on Fifth Avenue, just to find out if in fact the members of his own party would not do anything about it
2: yeah and and i think on top of that we have uh, a trend over and and I, I won't even say just the last few years trend over um a decade more uh of wider latitude within uh legislation that it, that is passed um you know that I, I came up through the financial world, so uh, you know those are the areas I'm most familiar with. There was a, a tremendous degree of latitude given to all the financial agencies uh, through um, uh, Dodd-Frank, and and you know that's not by any means the only large bill where that's been the case. So um, you get you get more you have a more aggressive executive uh, certainly, and then you also I think paired with that have a higher degree of latitude for executive branch agencies and independent agencies that that are implementing the bills that are out there.
1: Yeah, I see outrageous things sometimes that I think Congress is doing um, or or a a, 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 a regulatory agency is doing. And then one of my colleagues who knows the law better, um, I always say I'm the first in my family not to be a lawyer, but we have a lot of lawyers here I can consult. And they will say, well, yeah, it's kind of an outrageous thing to do. It's going to cost the economy money, but the the statute gives the regulatory agency the power to make decisions like that.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it, it's absolutely true. When I when I worked on the Hill, I, I worked for a, a you know, with a staff that was a bit more um, uh, hesitant to do that, and, and you know, our our staff director at the time would ask us all right you might be okay given the authority of the person that's there now but what's the next person coming in going to do with it um and and that's a that's an attitude that i think um would be uh, it would be beneficial if that attitude was a little wider through congress but that's that's not been the trend uh, it would it would absolutely be a reversal to to start moving in that direction again
1: by the way just to tell you what ticked me off when i got up this morning and started reading twitter was I didn't read anything about this before, but apparently in the last Congress, maybe it was even the Congress before that, but I guess the last Congress, Congress put a, a clause in one of these bills it passed that said members of Congress can now be reimbursed for their um, lodging, accommodations, and other expenses while they're in Washington. and that strikes me as a huge salary increase, which there are laws about when and how Congress can increase its own salary. This seems like a secret under the table increase in congressional salary. It's expenses of course, but if Cato suddenly passed a rule that we get our our lodging and our, our room and board paid for in addition to our salary, I would consider that an excellent salary increase.
2: Uh, certainly, when you uh, you take large expenses off the table, it uh, it certainly is a, a a nice bump. I didn't see the particular um, uh, piece that 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 you you're referring to, but there has been a trend towards um, allowing for more and more expensing of certain things for members of Congress. Well, uh, you, certainly. You,
1: you see, you're a professional Congress watcher, and you didn't know they did this.
2: <laughs> that uh, that bill at the end was was quite significant <laughs> and large. Yeah.
1: Well, anyway, um, are there particular policies this year that you think uh, you will be prioritizing on the Hill?
2: Uh, Yeah, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of this will be uh, trying to get ideas out there to get them introduced because a lot of large bills um, are not written overnight right before they get passed. These are bills that have been introduced in smaller pieces by other members. Uh, we talked a little bit about Scott's book. Um, uh, Scott is, is hopefully coming to DC, uh, later this month, as well as next month. Uh, we'll be promoting a lot of the ideas within, um, uh, within his book, the handbook, obviously will be going up. That's a kind of soup to nuts as you, as you mentioned. Um, but then we have, uh, an- another more focused piece, uh, coming in the financial services space that, uh, we're going to be up promoting uh, with the Banking Committee, House Financial Services Committee, uh, in in uh, early spring as well. Um, you know that's kind of the first 90 days approach from a high level. There'll be other opportunities that uh, you know I hope I hope come up uh, as we're going through those. Uh, but as we're building out the team and thinking of ways to uh, increase the uh, um, exposure that we can give the scholars, I think um starting with uh, pieces like that that are out there that are ready to go are going to be some of the things we concentrate on in the early days of the congress Um, it it, it's really a a benefit to staff um, when you have uh, ideas that are ready to be taken and ready to be turned into legislation Um, you know one of the things we haven't talked about is anytime you get a a new congress uh, you have uh you have a certain number of new members that are brand new to congress you have members that are new to certain committees and the members themselves the staff they're all looking for ideas that somebody doesn't already own so to have these things ready to go at this time i think is a real uh benefit to um uh the cato scholars the ideas that we're trying to advance and so we're going to be trying to take advantage of those opportunities as kind of the first step for this congress
1: So a lot of what happens in Congress, not enough of it, I suppose, but a lot of it is kind of small ball, small changes in existing policies. And that's presumably what you are often talking about with uh, members of Congress or their staffs. But long term, Cato's always been committed to making the case for big changes from the beginning. We were we were talking about transforming Social Security into a private retirement system. We were talking about changing our global interventionist foreign policy and so on. Is, mm-hmm. is that something you can do on Capitol Hill? Or do these big ideas have to work their way through the media before anybody at Congress will pay attention?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is it, it depends on the office. And part of what we're going to need to do is to know the office, know the audience, know how to talk to them. When I was on the Hill, I very much enjoyed having conversations um, uh, with Cato scholars, with others that were big ideas. Um, Many times I'd be very upfront that, you know, this is not something that we're going to be able to take and just put into a bill and move it as is. But it was helpful to me to think about things in a way that start with the ideal, start with where we're at, work um, towards that ideal, see what we can get through uh, committee get through the floor get uh, signed into law so to me there's still advantages to talking about big ideas because that helps people think about how they can move the ball even if it ends up being a smaller change now there are there are offices that that only want to talk about you know kind of small ball change here and there um, and and you have to know how to, to talk with them um, and and our scholars quite frankly have to be um, have to understand you know where they can get the maximum value for the ideas that they're putting out there and sometimes it's going to be a smaller change here and there um and and that's that's hopefully something that I and the team is are going to be able to help with and and have conversations and identify opportunities big and small
1: you and your colleagues do a lot of meetings with congressional staffers and, and some with senators and representatives themselves, usually on some specific policy issue, whether it's a large one or a small one. Do we ever do anything to provide congressional staff with deeper insights about liberty and policy?
2: Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, One of the things that I'm really excited uh, to work on that that, uh, that Cato has done a couple of times now, is um, uh, what we call a congressional fellowship program. Um, And and I I think it's a a very excellent concept that that I've seen executed in in variations uh, elsewhere. But I think um, from what I've learned, uh, I think we have a a really good system that uh, we're gonna try and uh, uh, run again, which is we pick a issue area. Um, We've done one on international studies. Uh, We've done a, a second one on constitutional studies. And, and we, we lay out a program over a number of weeks, uh, say eight weeks. Uh, and we, uh, we get space uh, near Capitol Hill uh, and try to provide a setting where um, uh, the senior staff within the Congress can apply to Cato, can be accepted into the program, and then come to a series of um, uh, uh, essentially groups of lecturers uh, over this uh, week-long period and eight weeks-long period. And that allows a number of our scholars to get in front of um, these offices. It allows the offices to talk amongst themselves. And it allows for a debate that I think, quite frankly, a lot of um, uh, senior staff uh, enjoy and don't always get to uh, experience when they're in more public settings. Um, so we provide a space where they can learn from our folks, where they can have an open exchange. And then that um, helps our ideas get uh, within, uh, the you know, the dialogue of this group, but then it also helps us build relationships out, uh, not only with those staff members, but others within the offices. So it's um, there's, there's an, an immediate benefit, so to speak, in that our folks are able to have that dialogue to express those ideas, but then there's also a long-term benefit um, that I believe is, is going to pay dividends for us down the road. And, and quite frankly, we've heard feedback from offices that it does pay dividends down the road for us. So um, that's a program I think that 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 is uh, in the vein of what you discussed that um, I'm excited for us to continue and think about what the next uh, kind of opportunity we can have there is. And then also as we, we bring in the team, one of the things I'm going to challenge the team Uh, to think about is additional opportunities that will be similar to this that we can use uh, to amplify the message at the time, but also to build those important relationships that we need down the road. All right,
1: good. We've been talking mostly about Congress, but your title is Vice President for Government Affairs. So do do we have any interaction with the other branches of government or the other levels like uh, states?
2: Uh, certainly, we have a uh, uh, we have a small team here operating uh, a, that 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 you know their sole mission is uh, state government relations. Um, we uh, you know the the way we tend to approach that right now is to look for opportunities as they come up. Um, we had a, 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 a great event here recently in North Carolina uh, that dealt with uh, the cost of housing and and various ways that we can approach. Uh, that issue at the state or local level, um, and I think there's going to be more opportunities on housing because there's a lot of areas, as I'm sure you're aware of, um, that that is already high and escalating even more quickly. Um, I think that issue is going to provide us a lot of opportunities. Um, at the state level, we're going to continue to uh, look for um, other opportunities. Uh, the team's done a lot of work as it relates to the Jones Act and. And how the um, uh, you know that that can be impacted by the states as well. Um, at the federal level, we talked uh, uh, just a bit uh, about the the immigration uh, I think victory uh, for Cato that that you know, we had, and that involved the Department of Homeland Security. So that's an example um, you know where we can start to have an impact at the uh, agency level. Um, you know the federal agency scene is is quite wide, quite broad. Um, so those are going to be opportunities that we're going to have to kind of take up as they come. Um, but, but we're certainly going to be looking for those opportunities, because as we discussed, there's likely to be a push to do more and more policies through the executive branch.
1: Right. OK. All right. Um, I want to uh, uh, open this up and let other people in uh, ask questions or make comments. Um, And as we said, you can email those questions to Josh or put them in the chat or use the raise hands button. Um, I've got more questions. Josh, do other people have questions?
0: Well, uh, John Early had a question about the Jones Act, which we uh, briefly touched on there, but I thought I'd just add a little bit more color to that uh, on federal agencies. Uh, Colin Grabo let me know uh, that he had a meeting with some members of uh, the Federal Reserve and economists over there that are taking a, a look at our Jones Act work and, and some of the monetary and financial implications they have for uh, you know the inflation we're facing, especially if you're in you know, Puerto Rico or Alaska. So I think that uh, it, that's probably the best example that I can think of, of just of Cato establishing a narrative and just really hammering home that these issues uh can affect you know the pocketbooks of somebody trying to go to Walmart and and get groceries for their kids all the way up to the largest corporations of America and and so I think that that the more we can continue to build those coalitions and stay focused on the ideas is is the more likely we are to achieve the success uh that Cato's mission kind of kind of sets out uh so I'll let uh you know if, if anybody else has anything to say on the Jones Act I'll let either of you uh, take it away.
1: I will just say that the Jones Act is a classic example of you know the problem of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. Everybody who isn't involved in the US shipping industry knows that this is a bad idea. But most of us, well, first, most Americans don't know anything about it, of course. Economists who have looked at it businesses that are aware of it and aren't themselves the shippers are aware that this is costly. It hurts places like Puerto Rico and Alaska, but it hurts everybody. Um, It makes things more expensive. But the people who really know about this and who are watching their member of Congress. And if any member of Congress ever says, you know, this seems like a bad idea, they're gonna hear from the shipping industry. And that's a real problem when you try to go after an existing regulation because every regulation creates generally a few winners and a lot of losers. But the losers, there are 10,000 government uh, programs that are costing each of us a dollar li- or a little bit more in costs at the grocery or a little bit more in taxes and so on. But the one program that you're benefiting from, that could be worth thousands of dollars to you. That could be what keeps you employed in the shipping industry. And so those are the people to hear from. So it's a big lift, it seems to me, to take off the uh, uh, to, to take on something like the Jones Act. But Chad may have something more up to date on that. Uh,
2: no, I, th- I think the policy, uh, I, I cannot say better than you. Um, I'll just say from a, 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 the way we've been approaching it thus far is um, uh, trying to advance model legislation within uh, some of the groups that work with the state legislatures um, to, uh, to, to, to give them... Uh, a look at how they might be able to, to make some changes in this area. So uh, strategically, that's how we've thus far been approaching it. And we've had, I think, some success there. And so we're, we're going to continue to pursue that. And and uh
0: Jim also had a question about qualified immunity, which is is a similar story on the on the state level. Uh we've had great success in in getting that mainlined in, in the states and uh Colorado and uh New York City, I believe, passed qualified immunity uh bills at, at their, their level. So are there any other qualified immunity projects you have have uh focused on, Chad? Or is there a different direction that uh, they're going there with
2: uh justice? Um, yeah. I'm sorry, I thought I heard somebody. Uh I, I don't have a necessarily a change in strategy on that yet. Uh, just continuing to look for opportunities and to build on the success that we've had. Yeah. Um, so one
0: of the chapters in the the newest handbook is about uh, congressional resurgence and. Uh, the House Speaker race, uh, well, race, kerfuffle, whatever we want to call it, uh, is is in in some way uh, an example of congressional resurgence. Uh, so I'm just wondering if either of the the two of you have any thoughts about is Congress getting a back, backbone or is it just uh, Matt Gates having strong hair product?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in in this instance, uh, it, you know it's an example of um, an internal backbone. Um, you know, when you have such narrow majorities, um, uh, you tend to see an outsized influence uh, with, with a handful of members. Um, you know, we've seen it on the Senate side, too, maybe not quite as, as dramatically as what we witnessed the, you know, in the last week or so in the House. But uh, um, you, you definitely get members that become more assertive uh, when you have those very narrow uh, majorities that we see now. Um, whether it translates into um, you know Congress reclaiming more power, uh, that uh, probably seems more difficult because they would need to be able to come to agreement with uh, the the Senate, um, and and it seems like the issue areas where you're likely to see agreement there are are, are pretty slim. It's um, not to say there won't be any. Um, there's still going to be funding bills. And there's always things good and bad tucked into those funding bills, um, so there 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 will be opportunities on the margin, um, but I don't know if 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 what we saw within the House is necessarily going to turn into a, a unified kind of position against uh, you know more executive branch authority, so to speak.
1: You know, it was interesting. There've been two columns by senior Washington Post uh, columnists uh, this week that kind of praised what the Republicans did. One of them said they should argue about who their leaders are. It shouldn't just be a fix and contrasted it to what the Democrats did, which was they had three 80-year-old leaders in the House who had been in those positions for 20 years. And they finally decided that they were all gonna step down at once this year. And three younger leaders were just unanimously elected to the three highest positions in uh, the democratic caucus and this one author said all these former senior class presidents in congress all these ambitious people and nobody wanted to challenge for any of these three positions that's a real democratic centralist party and then the other columnist said since the speakerships of Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi, Congress has just stopped being allowed to actually debate, amend, introduce amendments, vote on amendments, actually vote on legislation other than, here's the legislation the leadership has put on the uh, uh, put on the table, and everybody in the majority party should vote for it now. And she said, it's correct that members of Congress should be involved in open debate and everything. Now, I was amused by one of her points, which was, but when you have narrow majorities, like they do in both houses, sometimes you might not get any legislation at all if the leadership didn't rule with an iron hand. And I'm thinking, yes, when the American people did not give either party a strong mandate for its agenda, then you might not get much legislation, which is okay with me. Uh, so, William has a question here. Uh, one
0: he asked his colleagues can you name a thing that government does better, more efficiently, or more innovatively than the private industry? Uh, you know, I think that uh, the FAA is probably not a great example this week. <laughs> more efficient, but is there anything on, uh, that, that strikes the two of you?
1: Well, maybe national defense, although private industry isn't really given an opportunity to do that, but still I'm a limited government libertarian. I think there are reasons to have a national defense. Um, I think in security, policing, private industry probably has demonstrated within its limited scope that it does a better job, um, shoots fewer people, you know, that sort of thing. Um, Everything else, uh, it seems to me, the more we understand about the way the market works, the way government works, the more we know that government will always be less efficient than a whole bunch of competing enterprises, entrepreneurs in the private sector, looking for a better answer than other people have found and so even if you say well look the government space program gave us tang and a couple of other things i guess the question is if that money had been left in the private sector do you really believe it would not have created more benefits for society so i would say that no i cannot name other than like i say national defense I can't think of anything that we're better off leaving in the hands of centralized government.
0: I have a lot of trouble uh, checking out books that I want from the little free library, so I think government is probably a little bit better at running a public library. Uh, that's you know, I'm really stretching there, though. <laughs> that's the best I got. Chad, you got
1: anything?
2: I mean, I, I I don't think any of us would be on that on this call right now if we uh, had a list that was very long. Um, you know, I. I grew up with the traditional police, fire, national defense type uh, philosophies. I think even in certain circumstances, one might argue that the private sector is pretty good at doing some of that stuff. But uh, there's there's definitely, in my world, a very short list. So uh, coming
0: from kind of the, the banking world, uh, Chad, are there any particularly policies that you think would really promote that, that abundance agenda uh, that we were talking about at the beginning of this call?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we've talked, uh, our scholars have talked about um, the impact that uh, restrictive zoning can have on housing supply. Um, you know, that's something that comes to mind at the local level. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, I looked at a lot when I was on the banking committee was policies related to the secondary mortgage market um, and specifically Fannie and Freddie's role um, and and FHA. And I think you get um, a lot of the private market crowded out of that um, market because of the policies that we have. Um, And with a more vibrant private market in that area, I think you could see a lot lot more creativity, but I want to be, um, I want to be uh, careful. And, you know, a lot of people blame the the financial crisis on creativity and lending. I don't, I don't agree uh, with that um, approach. I think creativity and lending is fine. And, and a good thing, uh, when the risk for that creativity is borne by the people who are, um, are thinking creatively. And I think you could get uh, a lot of different types of mortgages. That could appeal to different people in different ways, uh, if uh, if our mortgage market didn't crowd out quite as much private competition. So, um, I think we have uh, a situation now where, um, you know, private companies, private lenders, enjoy the success of, of mortgage lending, while the taxpayers uh, uh, get the bill for the failures. Um, so that's one of the biggest things that that. I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was on the committee and I still think is a, a unresolved issue from the financial crisis.
1: Chad? Uh,
2: so go David, ahead.
0: oh, were you about to say something? I, I was gonna go to the next question. That's fine. All right, well, let's go here. Let's go to John earlier. It seems uh, education choice and widely supported. John, could you just, uh, do you wanna
1: unmute yourself and just ask uh, ask your question? trying to do it. Maybe not. Yeah. We're not hearing you,
0: John. I'm sorry. But uh it's it's all good. Uh, it seems like education choice is a, a big and, and uh, supported opportunity. It's something that we, we focus in on at Cato, but uh Are there, you know, do you think that that is is really a state level uh, piece that 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 your strat team will be working on, or uh, are there national uh, initiatives that that uh, could take place as well?
2: Uh, Certainly, certainly, state and local levels um, that'll that'll be, um, you know, that issue will be prominent in a lot of conversations there. I do think there could be some opportunities at the federal level. Uh, I won't necessarily um predict uh successful legislation but for instance i know this to be a a priority of senator tim scott who is um, a rising member uh within his party um is is now going to be the ranking member on the senate banking committee a lot of people believe he's going to continue to advance um and i I know that's an issue uh that 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 his office is working on more broadly i don't want to um specify his exact priorities um, but I do know that that uh, more educational opportunities is a is a big priority for him. Um, and so that could present opportunities down the road uh, that, that will stay ready for if they do present themselves. Well, I
1: say. Tim Scott's a senator and he should provide more educational choice here in the District of Columbia. And if he, <laughs> if he's got opinions about school choice beyond that. He should talk to the state legislature of South Carolina. Um. I noticed that Neil McCluskey, uh, our head of uh, Center for Educational Freedom tweeted this morning that some Republican had entered a, uh, introduced a bill to ban uh, critical race theory in the public schools across this great and wonderful land. And he said, no, it's not the business of the federal government. The states should take a look at what's being taught in the, in the schools, but not the business of the federal government. Um, Neil has the cover story in the new issue of Cato policy report, um, which will be out in a couple of weeks, I guess. And he says there was a lot of progress on uh, school choice around the country coming out of the pandemic, because partly, you know, people, people couldn't go to school, and people didn't necessarily like the way the The remote schooling with the public schools work, so people were looking for more opportunities, more options, and states, in particular Arizona, have passed new initiatives, making more choice available in places. So it's slow. I tell you, it's been, um, oh God, I don't even want to admit, 25 years since I wrote Libertarianism a Primer. And when I went back after about 20 years and looked at what I wrote about schools in there, I was so optimistic. It, polls all showed that people understood the public schools weren't working that well, and they thought families should have choice, which you would think, of course they do. Who would not think a family should be able to choose the school its, its children will go to? And in polls, people said they liked it but we had not made much progress. But it does seem like in the first few years, the last few years, we are starting to make progress in that area, even though again, every government program creates a vested interest among some people. And I think with the public schools, it's about 2 million teachers. So you've got 2 million teachers who think their job relies on not allowing kids to escape, which is an interesting way to think about it, you know um if you believe that having competition would cause everyone to leave your school maybe you should have a better school um but i do think there's some progress read neil's cover story in your next cato policy report all right we'll I have uh, one
0: last question before we uh say sayonara for the night uh and it's uh you know in the in the cato handbook there's an awful lot of repeal 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 on, on a lot of these ideas Uh, and I was just wondering, you know, the, I was reading Will Duffield's paper on jawboning against free speech. And I was wondering, David, if if you just have any thoughts on, on what sort of a law could, uh, protect, you know, private companies from, from that sort of jawboning. And and by jawboning everyone, I mean, uh, you know, a, a government actor that's sending an email suggesting that maybe you should take something down. There's not a law about it, but they might, uh, They might come into your store and break a few break the China cabinet kind of a kind of a mafia style uh, thing.
1: Yeah, it's a real problem. And the problem is that government is so powerful and so all encompassing that any businessman has got to be constantly worried and it could be on the local level, you know. Um, that if you if you don't make a contribution to the mayor, you just might see an inspector coming around to see if uh, your, your grass is cut to the right length. Um, and on the federal level, there are so many things the federal government could do. Just open an IRS audit, open a, a financial services investigation, all those kinds of things. So what he means by jawboning is presidential or executive or it could be congressional pressure to do something the politicians want but hey i'm not saying you have to there's no law about this i'm just saying shouldn't you take down that bad information or shouldn't you go along with a a, a raise for your workers wouldn't that be a better idea shouldn't you look at the nfl right now shouldn't you have more diverse coaches i'm not saying there's any law about you have to have diversity among your coaches but Really, the president thinks this is very important for the country. Because there's no law, it's very hard to outlaw it, because it's always possible that this company does need an IRS audit, or really is doing something skeevy with its financial services. Those are always possibilities. Um, So we try to hem it in, um, and I, I must confess, I didn't read Will's paper. Um, So I don't know if at the end he had any particularly good suggestions for how to deal with that.
0: I think it's an open question for, for in a lot of ways, but uh, it's 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 a challenge, and I think that the, this whole Twitter Files thing, it, uh, Will's paper came out a few weeks before those those revelations, uh, you could call them, and I think it just goes to show that it, that it was happening, and it was uh, everybody in 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 tech knows that that's happening, and basically anybody who owns a business knows <laughs> that, that, that that happens, and I don't think very many voters are aware of of how much power that even the government coming and knocking on your door has. Uh, they all, what are what do they uh, they say in the courts? the uh, the process is the punishment in in some ways, and uh, I think that that is true on on the executive side and congressional side as well. um but uh Chad, just but before we break, are there any uh, like last thoughts parting thoughts you have or uh, uh, anything you wanna leave us with uh, after your first you know, third month at Cato? <laughs> uh,
2: nothing profound. I just uh, i'm 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 really happy to be here. um you know anytime I can be. Uh um uh helpful or informative um on on, on this call and other things I uh, really look forward to those opportunities and um you know cato is an institution that i've worked with for a number of years uh in different capacities and so i'm really excited to be able to work from the inside uh to help uh hopefully promote the the brand and the ideas um throughout the throughout all of washington and the country <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thank you to everyone
0: for, for joining us. Uh, we hope to see you uh, May 18th through May 21st. We're having our Milton Freeman Prize here in Washington, D.C. Uh, that'll be at the Building Museum a, a couple blocks from Cato. Uh, and then the Benefactor Summit, uh, which is the 19th, 20th, and 21st, will uh, be here at Cato headquarters. Uh, so we'd love to see you for that event. Uh, and, and I know some of you were, were planning on being at the Cato club retreat this past year, which was canceled for for the hurricane so uh, we're excited to, to see everybody again. Uh, last other closing notes if you happen to need a copy of the Cato handbook for policymakers, uh, you know for for any local folks or, uh, you know, just to set on your 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 shelf to. Uh, peruse all the ways we can shrink government. Uh, don't hesitate to, to send me an email. Uh, and lastly, I just wanted to introduce Megan Jay, who is is on this call. Uh, Megan's going to be taking over uh, a lot of the benefactor uh, sponsor level responsibilities for me as I uh, transition into uh, a major gifts uh, role, as we call it here at Cato. And, and I'll be focused on uh, fundraising in in the Midwest. So if you're in Chicago, you'll probably be hearing me knocking on your door uh, before too long or, or any of those other Midwestern states. But uh, just uh, some of you all may also recognize Megan from uh, her time at AIJ and AEI. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Megan, I don't know if you want to say
1: hey or anything, but uh, we'll just leave it with that. All right. Well, thank you, everyone.